My name is Charlie Bourne. I'm a member here at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Uh, if I didn't introduce myself already, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you have joined us. Um, I was thinking this week about boxing, which will be more clear why here in just a minute. But I think uh, the greatest boxer of all time is Muhammad Ali. Fair. Um, boxing nerds will maybe try to argue with you that it's pound for pound. Maybe it was Sugar Ray. That's just wrong. It's Muhammad Ali. I think this is just a fact, and we just have to kind of live with it. But my problem is that I am, and I love Ali, he's from Kentucky, I'm from Kentucky, it's great. My problem is I'm too young to have seen Ali in his prime, um, but I'm old enough that I did see Mike Tyson in his prime, and prime Mike Tyson was an absolute beast. He was must-see TV, so I can remember, you know, Back when Ali was boxing, you could watch fights for free. By the time we got to Tyson, it was all pay-per-view. But you had to be on the couch at your buddy's house watching TV before the bell rang, or you might miss the whole fight because Tyson came out swinging. Yes, like 12 of Tyson's first 16 professional matches ended in the first round. It took 20 professional fights before anybody was able to make it to the 10th round with Tyson. He once, at age 19, TKO'd a guy in 30 seconds. You have to do a lot of damage in the first 30 seconds to get TKO'd back short into the first round. Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Spinks in a minute and 31 seconds. Michael Spinks. Some of you, this may not be resonating, Michael Spinks won a gold medal at the Olympics. Like, Michael Spinks beat Larry Holmes twice. You know how many professional matches Spinks lost in his entire professional career? One to Mike Tyson in 91 seconds. When that bell rang, Tyson came out swinging. And I was thinking of that this week, believe it or not, as I was reading John chapter 1. Because the Apostle John comes out swinging. If you don't know much about the Apostle John, he was a young man when Jesus called him and his brother James to leave their father's fishing business and to come follow him. And James and John, along with Peter, would become something of like a three-man inner circle among the 12 apostles. Jesus nicknamed John and his brother James the Sons of Thunder because they were like always ready to go. They were ready to charge into whatever it was that he needed done. It's also a fantastic wrestling tag team nickname that it's unfortunate no one has ever used, but the Sons of Thunder. That just sounds awesome, does it not? And so John, as you, if you're reading through the gospel that bears his name, when he refers to himself, he doesn't refer to himself as John. He calls himself the apostle that Jesus loved. And I think it must be, this is pure speculation on my part, but I think it must be because being loved by Jesus became 
the primary defining way that John thought about himself. I'm someone who's loved by Jesus. And John is, is a front row eyewitness to the things that he writes about. We find John uh, reclining at Jesus' side at the Last Supper. He's the only apostle listed who is at the cross with Jesus' mother Mary as he is being crucified. He races with the apostle Peter to the empty tomb to verify the first reports that the apostles got from the women that, that Jesus' body wasn't there. He's the first one to recognize Jesus after his resurrection. The apostles are out fishing and they finally see him and he's on the beach and John's the one who recognizes him. After Jesus' ascension, John will be called a pillar of the church by the apostle Peter. He serves as a lay elder at a church in Ephesus where Timothy is the lead pastor. He's going to write five books of the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, where Jesus gives him some visions of what the end of times is going to look like. He's the last of the 12 apostles to die, an old man on the island of Patmos. John is as reliable an eyewitness to the events that he records as you will find in all of recorded human history. John is right there. If you were only going to read one book of the Bible, I would tell you to read John. Now, I hope you don't only read one book of the Bible, but if you were, I'd tell you to read John. And if you were only going to read one chapter of John, I would tell you to read John chapter 1 because the apostle absolutely comes out swinging with theological truth after theological truth, bold audacious, scandalous in his day claims about who Jesus is. There are seven of them in just the first chapter. We're going to work our way through all the way through John chapter 1 and see these seven truth claims that the apostle gives us about the Lord Jesus. You can follow along in John chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. First truth that John gives us is that Jesus always was. Jesus always was. He uses five words in the Greek, it's six in the English, to lay down this gauntlet right at the very beginning. He uses the exact same words that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use as he opened up the Bible in Genesis 1.1. Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. He's saying there was never a time when Jesus was not. That he is eternally pre-existent. He is not the first created things, as the Mormons wrongly claim. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons that Mormonism is not Christianity, no matter how you brand it. It's just not. He, he, he is not just a great prophet, as the Muslims wrongly claim. He was not just another very good rabbi, as the Jews wrongly claim. Not just an inspiring example as so many kind of vaguely spiritual people are willing to admit. John says 
he, Jesus, the Word, was both with God, meaning he is distinct from God the Father, but John says he also was God, meaning he's one with God the Father. Jesus always was. Keep going, verse 4. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And that's a little bit confusing, but again, he's not referring to himself there. He's actually referring to John the Baptist. He, you know, he won't refer to himself as John in his book. Um, so he's talking about John the Baptist here. Um, he, he, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So this second bold truth that John puts out there for us is that Jesus is the source of life. He's the source of life. And John is referring specifically and explicitly to two different kinds of life. First, he says, Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. He's saying, God the Son is the agent of creation that God the Father, you know, through whom God the Father's creative action happens. But he also says that Jesus is the one who makes it possible to, for people to be born as children of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus is going to call it being born again. When Nicodemus comes and says, how, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus is going to say, we have to be born again. That's what John is referring to here. Born as an adopted child of God. So whether it's this life, which everyone experiences, or eternal life, which comes by God's grace through faith, Jesus is the source of that life. Pick back up at verse 14. And the word, this word that John just said, was in the beginning with God and was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So he's giving you this kind of parenthetical insertion. He's setting the stage. Who, who is he specifically talking about? He's letting you know I'm talking about Jesus. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this third truth that John wants to make sure you understand about Jesus is that Jesus makes God known. Jesus makes God known. If you want to know what God is like, Look at and listen to Jesus. God the Son makes God the Father 
known. Sometimes you'll hear people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That is categorically untrue. You hear someone say that, they have not read through the New Testament, or if they have, they have completely dismissed it. Because he does claim that. He claims it multiple times. Ultimately, it's that claim that causes the Jewish religious elite to seek his death. So I'll give you just a few examples. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name that God the Father gave of himself to Moses back in Exodus 3.14. Moses says, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? And he said, I am who I am. You tell him I am sent you. And Jesus is identifying himself with the name of Yahweh. John 14.8, Jesus says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 17, 5, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it's not a one-time claim. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not something that, you know, the followers of Jesus made up after his death to try to perpetuate some type of Jesus cult. This is the clear, unambiguous claim of Jesus and the apostles and the early church that Jesus makes God known. God the Son makes God the Father known. Let's continue. John is relentless with this. I, I, I want you to feel kind of the pace of chapter 1 where, where he's just saying, you know, it's like theological punch after theological punch on who are we talking about here. Verse 19. This is the testimony of John, again, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's, he's quoting there from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So John the Baptist is thinking of himself. He, he recognizes that he was sent to fulfill specific Old Testament prophecy. Verse 24. They had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So we get now this fourth stunning truth claim from John that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And to our modern ears, especially, you know, if you 
it may not hit you this way if you're brand new to church, but if, you've, if you grew up in the church or you spent a lot of time in the church, Lamb of God, it might just kind of roll over you like, oh yeah, that's a pseudonym for Jesus and we sing about it. This is, an, this is a stunning claim by John. Back in Leviticus 16, God had given Israel very specific instructions on what the priests were supposed to do to make atonement for the sins of the people. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would make atonement for all Israel. The first thing he had to do was make atonement for himself and for his own family by sacrificing a bull. Then what he would do is he would get two goats, and they were going to be representatives of the people of Israel. They were substitutes for the people. And the first goat will be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And its blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle and later the temple. The second goat, the priest would pray over the goat, place his hands on the head of the goat, symbolically placing the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat. But that second goat would be sent away into the wilderness. It would take away the sins of the people. It would live. You heard the phrase scapegoat? This is the, where that comes from. That's a biblical idiom because the second goat escaped. It was the scapegoat. And now here is John the Baptist saying Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who will take away sin, not just the sins of Israel, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the one on whom the sins of God's people will be placed. He's going to stand in for the people. He is going to become their substitute, and their sin is going to be put on him. He's the one who's making atonement for sin. But Jesus is the singular Lamb of God because he will both be sacrificed and live to take away the sins of the world. Now, that is either the most blasphemous, arrogant, audacious claim in the history of human religion, or that is a stunningly joyous, life-altering, world-changing truth about how you and I can be reconciled to a holy God despite the fact that we're sinners. It's one of the two. You'll keep going. Verse 32. And John, the Baptist, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, that is, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. As if it is not outrageous enough to claim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God, now this Son of Thunder tells us that he is also the Son of God. And I know that sometimes you may hear people say that the idea of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, 
that that is not in the Bible. And they'll say, well, that was just laid up, made up later by theologians who were, you know, kind of making things up as they, but it's right here. God the Father speaks, God the Son is being baptized, and God the Spirit descends on him. It's right there. Jesus, we've already read these, Jesus has already referred to God as his Father. He prays to God as his Father in John 17. And he's clear that through him, others may also become children of God. They can become adopted by his Father, by his Father's grace through faith. That Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples. John kind of had like a grow group kind of deal where um, there were some guys that were, were being mentored by him spiritually. He looks at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, lest there be any doubt, about what it is that John is saying, he makes clear this sixth truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. If you've been at all unclear, John says, he is the Messiah. Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means anointed one. It's just, you know, when, when they said the word that meant anointed one, it sounded like Messiah. And when you translate Messiah into Greek, it's translated as Christ. And so if you're someone who's brand new to church or you're just beginning to explore the claims of the Bible, sometimes you can hear Christians and we'll say Jesus Christ, and it can almost sound like Christ was his last name, but Christ is actually a title, like king or governor or mayor. It's Jesus the Christ would be a better translation. So there are 121 distinct prophecies about God's Messiah in the Old Testament. So this claim that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that truth claim will become the dividing line for those who accept Jesus and those who reject Jesus. If he is not the Messiah, then Christianity is a false religion, and I'm a false prophet, and this is a false church. If this claim is wrong, and it's bound up with the resurrection, they go together. I understand Paul's argument in Corinthians. This is the claim that Christianity rises and falls on. Is he or is he not the Christ? But the clear testimony of Jesus and the apostles and the early church and of this church is that yes, indeed, Jesus is the long-awaited Old Testament 
Messiah. We'll finish the chapter out. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. I made a joke about Nazareth in the first service because it's kind of this like one stoplight little know-nothing town. And I said, I'm not going to use the joke in this service because I felt bad about it. But what I said then was it was kind of like saying you found the president in Goose Creek. But like everybody's like, well, there's no way the president's not coming from Goose Creek. But then I felt bad because Goose Creek's actually a nice little town. So I'm not going to use that joke in this service. So I learned, you know, you have to grow. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It is a nice little place to live. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He'd have your attention now. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open to the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you've been following along with this year-long series we're in through the Bible called The Story, this seventh truth claim should well up in you a joy and a wonder that I think surely must have been John's as he wrote it down because he is saying Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament writers were writing about. Philip is saying to Nathaniel, and by extension to us, don't you remember Back in Genesis 3.15, when God said he was going to send someone who would crush the head of Satan, that's Jesus. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 18.15, when right before his death, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers, and he is the one that you should listen to. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's like Moses. Don't you remember in Isaiah 52, 5, when God promised that one would come who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would be crushed for our iniquities, that upon him would be the chastisement that would bring us peace and that by his wounds we would be healed. That's Jesus. Don't you remember in Jeremiah 31 when God said he was going to make a new covenant with his people, a covenant not written on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people. Jesus is the one that's ushering in that new covenant. It's Moses and the prophets wrote about him. He's saying, don't you remember all those times in the Old Testament when God kept calling Israel his son? And that seemed kind of weird because there were millions of us. Don't, Don't you see that Jesus is the greater and true son of God? who did not sin in the wilderness, 
who perfectly obeyed his father's law, who perfectly submitted to his father's will. That was Jesus he was talking about. Don't you remember back in 2 Samuel 7 when, when God made a promise that there would always be a descendant of David who would reign as a forever king on a forever throne over a forever kingdom? That was Jesus that God was talking about. Don't you remember Daniel's great prophecy in Daniel 7 when he said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, who Jesus just called himself, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And John said, that's Jesus. It's all about him. Don't you see? Is that not well up in you? You're not as excited as surely Philip and Nathaniel must have been. That John, as he came to know these things, like that, all of that was about Jesus. This is, like John just comes out swinging. It's chapter one. And he's saying, all these things we've been studying together for the last eight months was all getting us to this point. This is who we've been talking about all the way through the story. This is who we're going to keep talking about every Sunday till he returns or calls us home. Because it's all about him. This is what we deeply long for you to believe, for you to know, for you to rejoice over, for you to share with those who are close to you but far from him. We want you to see in the scriptures for yourself. That's why we're trying to show you the big story, that you might glory in these things and wonder at these things. That you might open up the scriptures and see that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. <laughs> and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Don't you see John's saying it's all him. He's the promised one. He is the son of God, the lamb of God who is sacrificed and yet lives. He is the one who makes the father known. He is the one who makes eternal life possible because he is, in fact, our great God and Savior. This is the one who is promised. Don't you see? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these things are so dense, and yet they're so simplistic, such truth in so few words. We wonder... In awe, we tremble that for 1,400 years you would make 121 promises specifically pointing to your son. 
We can scarce take it in. It is to us like a pearl we find in the field. We sell everything we own. We might just have it. Would you make us a church centered around these truths? Would you give us a joy over them? An excitement because of them? An eagerness to share them with other people? That we might never drift from them but that we might even leave here this morning as excited as John was. That we might just go through life swinging, as it were. We might be a, true, a church built on these truths, built on your son, the lamb who has triumphed, Jesus the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.